Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey, great morning to you. Glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, this this uh, week, our pastor, Pastor Peter, is up in Merced preaching for a friend of uh, his at a church up there in Merced. Uh, so we want to be praying for him. I don't know what time that service was starting, but it could be going on right now. So just shoot up a prayer for him. And you, uh, on the other hand, are you're blessed with me. Uh, so that's great too. Thank for that smattering of applause. I'm, uh, I thank you for that. Um, one quick reminder, one thing we didn't really pick up in announcements we had kind of neglected is if you were wondering about the memorial service for Jim and Nelda McClellan, uh, that's happening this coming Saturday at 11.30 a.m. right here uh, in this room. So if you could help us get the word out on that, that'd be great. 11.30 on Saturday. We're continuing our, our, our work through the book of Titus, uh, this small little three-chapter letter in the New Testament. We've been kind of going bit by bit uh, through there, and we have, as we've, as we've walked through the book of Titus, uh, Paul is writing to uh, this young man who he's left on the island of Crete to kind of help get things restored or get things put in order in the churches that are there that are, are struggling. So as we've unpacked this letter, we've seen Paul's had instructions for leaders that he wants Titus to establish uh, there on Crete. He's uh, given some instructions to... Uh, Old, older men, older women, younger men, younger women on how they are to live and, and, and act uh, in this world. He's addressed some false teaching that had sprung up uh, in the church. And so he's kind of instructing Titus on, hey, here's the, here's the things that you need to kind of get lined up and get in order uh, on Crete. And so we're going to continue uh, in that vein. Uh, but now we're kind of moving towards hey, what's the why, I mean, or how. He's given us the what, these are the things that need to, to happen, but we need a little bit of the why and the how. How is this going to happen? How is this going to take place? And so uh, Paul's finishing uh, the book of Titus, this letter to Titus, with, with some of those instructions. But before we get to that, I want to make an observation that I'm sure you're aware of, but I want to try to bring the point home because it, I think it's important for us uh, to understand. And that's this idea that words are important. It doesn't really matter what you do for a living or how you have structured your house or how you live your life. Words become very important. The words that you use, how they're defined, and making sure that there's a mutual understanding of what these words mean. And, and it would be very difficult, whether it's a, a medical thing or, or some kind of electrical thing or whatever you're troubleshooting, words become very important. And so to drive that point home, I wanted to share with you uh, a couple places where I've noticed this to be particularly true. The first is when we think about professional and college sports, uh, usually their teams have nicknames. And these nicknames are strategically chosen to instill fear and intimidation in the team that you're facing. And so you get things like Giants, Titans, Bears, Warriors, things like this that when you when you just hear the word, it strikes a little bit of fear in you, like, boy, that they must be really good. And so that's what we want. This works great most of the time. There are other times, however, and you've probably observed this yourself, where it doesn't work quite as well. As an example, I, I went to school in Southern California, so my elementary school, Royan Elementary, 
our mascot and, and nickname were the raccoons. So again, there are certain contexts where if you were facing a rabid raccoon, that might be intimidating and scary. But typically, that doesn't instill fear uh, and they're cute and cuddly and all that. I, uh, I left elementary school, went to high school, went on to college, attended college at Azusa Pacific University. We were the cougars. Now you're talking about an intimidating uh, animal there. We were the cougars. And on our football schedule every year, we played the Whittier College uh, football team. Uh, if you don't know, Whittier College, they have a nickname. Their nickname's the Poets, the Whittier Poets. So I just want to say that when you're at least the prospect of facing Whittier College on the gridiron, if, if you not, knew nothing else about Whittier College except that they were called the Poets, you're like, hey, I think we got a chance. I think we got a chance. So the Poets. And then you're probably aware right over here in Santa Cruz, we have the UC Santa Cruz Banana Slugs. That is their uh, nickname. Down in Irvine, UC Irvine, their nickname's the Ant Eaters. And so there are certain, like, again, if you were an ant and you were the prospect of facing an ant eater, that's probably the most terrifying thing that you could imagine happening. But the idea of facing them on the basketball court is like, all right, they might be good, but they're the ant eaters, you know. So anyway, so, so that happens. But this point was, was even more importantly driven home to me a few years ago when Kristen and I remodeled our bathroom. And part of our bathroom remodel was uh, we needed a new toilet. And so as we were looking at toilets, um, you might think that one toilet is as good as another, and you would probably be right. I mean, I can't imagine that technology is all that different toilet to toilet. But let me just tell you that toilet names are not all created equal. So as we were looking at what's going to be the new toilet that we're going to put in our bathroom, uh, we came across names like Ultra Flush. And when you think about Ultra Flush, you go, to me, uh, that, that gives me some confidence that it's going to do what I'm asking it to do. We came across uh, a toilet called the Viper. Uh, there's one called the Cyclone. So you're thinking, okay, my confidence is building. Like, these are toilets that I, I think I would be feel good about putting in my, in my bathroom. But there was one toilet that in my, in my mind stood out above the rest as the toilet that I, would remove anything in my house that I didn't want to be there. And it was the toilet called the avalanche. And when I, when I just think about the whole process, the, the toilet I want, I wanted, to me the avalanche was the toilet that, that that is going to do what I wanted to do. So I, I think this is, this is important for us to understand that, that words are important. That as, as we think about how we describe things and how we come to understand things, the words we use become important. Now, the nickname of your college or the type of toilet you put in your bathroom, those are relatively minor things. When we get to theology and doctrine, though, there are words that when we come across them, we can either blow past them as like, hey, I don't know exactly what that word means, but it must be important because it's in the Bible. Or we can press in and say, that I want to understand what this word is all about or what it means to me as a believer. And as, we've, as we're walking through Titus, today in the passage we have for this morning, there is a word in there that I think is important for us to come to terms with. Because we, we toss the words around. You know, we say love. We talk about justification. We talk about salvation, forgiveness. These are all great words. And it's kind of insider language to a certain degree because we've been coming to church for a long time, maybe many of us. But if you were new, 
to church or new to faith and you hear these words, it can be overwhelming. And so this morning we want to unpack a particular word. It's the word, the word is grace. Again, it's a word that we throw around a lot. We're thankful for God's grace or God is gracious. But do we really understand what God's grace is all about? So let's look at Titus chapter 2 together. We're in the second chapter of Titus. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14. You may notice if you were here last week that uh, Pastor Peter ended at verse 8. Uh, and then I'm picking up at verse 11. And you may be wondering about verses 9 and 10. Uh, Pastor Peter is going to pick those up next week as he jumps into chapter 3. It, it kind of flows together pretty well. So we're not leaving 9 and 10 behind. He'll pick that up next week. We're going to pick up this morning though. At, at verse 11. So let's look at that together. Chapter uh, 2 of Titus, beginning at verse 11. This is what it says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So let's look at this. Paul says, first and foremost, he said, God's grace has appeared and it saves us. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all men. The, the entire plan, God's entire plan of redemption, of redeeming us and saving us from sin is based in the grace of God. It's based in this idea of, of grace. God's grace uh, is free, it's undeserved, it's God's favor in our life. The Greek word that gets used here is charis. And it literally means, the root of this word literally means to lean in, to incline towards. And so if you, if you can understand this idea of God leaning into us, his favor leaning towards us, wanting to offer uh, his best uh, for us, it's, and it's what we don't deserve. It's free, we haven't earned it, we can't earn it. God gives it uh, to us. But to get a better understanding of how grace works in our life or the importance of it, I, I felt like it might be good for us to look at what life is like outside of grace. Like without God's grace in our life, what would life be like? And so I'd like you to hold your place there in Titus chapter 2 and maybe look back to Ephesians chapter 2. And I feel like Ephesians chapter 2 I'm going to read a, a little bit of an extended section of, e, of Ephesians 2, but I feel like it gives us a, a great snapshot of our life outside of grace. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, says this. And this is Paul writing, this is also Paul writing uh, to the church in Ephesus. He says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace 
expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Outside of a relationship with God, outside of grace, it says we were dead in our transgressions and sin. Separated from God, destined for his wrath. That's life outside of God's grace. But it says that uh, grace appeared. And so when we think about that and we think about what grace uh, means in our life, uh, we, we see that it's the essence of the gospel. It, it, it's really what the gospel is all about. It gives us victory over sin in our life. It gives us hope for an eternal future with God. It gives us power to live as God has called us to live. It's an incredible picture of what God wants to do for us. And it says here in verse 11, and I think this is important. This, this is an important idea as I was... Uh, thinking through this. It says that grace appeared. So grace is not, is not just an idea. Grace is not a concept that's floating out there. Grace actually appeared in person, in the person of Jesus Christ. It is grace personified. Paul says that grace appeared and brings salvation uh, into our life. And so it's important that we, when we see that God broke into this moral mess that the world had become, he broke into it personally in the person of Christ so that we could uh, have victory and be, be set free from the bondage to the, the, all the junk that we have created uh, in our life. And so as we look at this, again, we're reminded that it's a free gift. I'm going I'm to steal real quickly a verse that Pastor Peter is going to touch on again next week. But in the very next chapter, chapter 3 of Titus, Paul says this to Titus in verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So again, we're reminded that, that everything that we experience, this grace that we experience, is something that God gives to us freely. We don't, we don't earn it. And I, I, and I would say this morning, if you are sitting here and you have not experienced the saving grace of God in your life, it is, it is our hope and our prayer and our desire that you would make that decision, that you would experience God's grace that brings salvation into your life. So God's grace does save us, but it also continues to work in our life. So if we look at, at verse 12, he says that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Paul says that God's grace teaches us. So it saves us, but God's grace also is teaching us. It's teaching us to say no. And it's teaching us to say yes to the right things. So when we look at this, we see the impact of, of Christ coming into the world. That there's a, a moral impact, a change that happens in our life when we come to recognize the true grace of God in our life. So it's, it says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And so you might rightly ask, well, what are these? What are these ungodly, these worldly passions that I am saying no to? And so as we think about that, one commentator that I had read this week says that these, these worldly passions are the things that will not pass over with us into eternity. So these would be things like your bank account, 
the house you live in, the car you drive, the job you have, the reputation that you, that you have. None of these things that we strive so hard for many times, uh, and they're not unimportant, but when we build our life on these things, they become these passions that become very worldly and controlling in our life. And these are things that are not going to go with us uh, into eternity. These are the worldly uh, passions that, that we need to say no to. In other places in the Bible, they're referred to, to like this. Maybe the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. First John chapter 4 talks about uh, those things. And these are things that we all, to one degree or another, we all struggle with these things. You, you may have a pretty good handle on certain areas of your life, but we all struggle with these things in our life. One of the uh, early church fathers, Augustine, observed this very thing. And his recognition was that, that there were people that were struggling in life. Uh, they were discontent with life. And he would just began to set out to investigate why is this that people are so discontent and struggling with sin in their life. And his conclusion was that for most of us, that our lives are out of order. That our loves, the things that we love, are out of order. And he believed that our problem isn't necessarily that we love the wrong things. It's that we often love the right things in the wrong order. Hear that again. Augustine said, he, uh, Augustine believed that our problem isn't necessarily that we love the wrong things. It's that we often love the right things in the wrong order. And so when we think about getting things right, this is one of the, one of the things that God's grace does in our life. Augustine taught that, we, uh, that most fundamentally we're shaped by not what we believe or what we think or even what we do, but what we love. What are the things in your life that you love? And when the grace of God shows up in our life, in the person of Jesus, it fundamentally changes who we are and set, sets things right in our life. We begin to develop the right priorities uh, and, we, and we focus on the right things. We're able to say no to what is ungodly and yes to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So let's look a little bit closer at this idea of self-controlled, upright, and godly lives that, that Paul's talking to Titus about. He says self-controlled. This, is a, this theme is reoccurring in Titus. In fact, this is the fourth time in chapter 2 that Paul mentions this idea of being self-controlled. And so when we look at the idea of self-control, to me this is the, uh, an, inner light, an inner life that is rightly focused, that has the priorities right. Our passions, our desires, they're in their proper place. This is an inward look at what my life is about. It's self-controlled. Upright lives. This is righteous living. This is how I live, how, what people see out in the world, how I treat other people, how I respond to them. Living truthfully, living justly. This is my outward behavior, my outward posture to the world. And then godly lives is this idea of living reverently before God, that, that my, I'm fully devoted to God, I'm living obediently to Him. This is the upward look in my life. So we've got the, the inward self-controlled, the outward living upright, and, and the upward living a godly life. It's a picture really of the complete transformation that happens when God's grace invades my life. It's not just a compartment of my life, it's a full life remodel. Inward, outward, and upward. So 
that's how grace works as we live our life in this present age. Paul goes on to say in verse 13 that God's grace makes us look forward. He says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is something that we're anticipating, we're looking forward to. As believers, we are anticipating the day that we step into eternity. And so this return of Christ is this thing that we're eagerly waiting for. So while we wait, Paul says, while we wait, it's this idea of a child's waiting for their birthday. I was thinking about it. There was a time in our life we really anticipated birthdays coming. And then as you get older, that's not as great a thing as it used to be. But kids anticipate, anticipate their birthday. Or Christmas is coming. And they've got it on the calendar. They're counting the days. But probably the, biggest, the, the greatest picture for me at least as I thought about eagerly waiting is, is what we do when we set up a wedding ceremony. Because a wedding ceremony, we've, we've got everyone comes. They're dressed up usually pretty nicely. We've got a nice setting. We have people come down uh, sprinkling flowers down the center aisle. The wedding party comes in. We're all focused to the back. And there is this, one of the high points of the wedding ceremony is when the bride shows up, right? And, and we've, we've looked to this. I brought a picture today of this. Is, I got a chance to do this with my daughter uh, a few years ago. So that's us getting ready to, to uh, head, head down the aisle. And so everyone stands up and looks back at, at the bride. So this is... This is the, the picture of us we're, while we're waiting, while we're anticipating the re- return of Christ. The only reason that we would look forward to that happening is because we know what, what's in store for us. Grace has transformed us. Grace has readied us for what is to come. And so Paul says we're, we're waiting. We're looking forward to this return, this personal, this return of Christ. It's the hope that we have. It's his glorious appearing He even mentions here the appearing of our great God. This is Jesus in all his deity. This is God showing up in person, in the person of Jesus. And so we anticipate this. Now this glorious appearing, we we talk about it, we look forward to it, and it it just took me to a couple other passages in the New Testament I thought I would share with you this morning that just, I think, give a snapshot of what we're looking forward to in this coming of Christ. In in Philippians chapter 2, Paul's writing to the Philippians. He says, therefore God exalted him, that's Jesus, to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. This is what we're anticipating. This is the hope. This is the glorious coming of Christ that we look forward to. And God's grace creates that in us. And so we look forward to that. So we're looking looking forward to this day of his appearing. But then finally, Paul says in verse 14, that grace allows us to reflect back. Verse 14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So Paul's talking here about this idea of reflecting back to what the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus was all about. This idea of being redeemed, redemption, this is, it's another great Christian word, right? We, we toss it around about being redeemed, but... We need, to, we need to unpack it a little bit more, and probably there is a, 
uh, a sermon that could be preached just around the idea of redemption. But for this morning, this idea of redemption stresses not so much our guilt as rebellious people in, in God's eyes, but more this deliverance from the power and the bondage of sin in our life. That Christ's death and his resurrection paid the ransom so that we could be free from the bondage of sin. We've been redeemed from the power of sin uh, in our life. So we've been redeemed, but Paul says we've been purified as well. So this idea of purification points more to the moral defilement, our unholiness before God, that we, because of sin, we are unholy before God. So sin makes us not just, not only guilty, but also unclean before God. And so this idea of being redeemed and being cleansed restores this relationship with God. Grace does that. This, again, this is nothing that we've done. It's not because I give regularly to the church. It's not because I live rightly and I'm really honest. This is God's grace freely given uh, in our life. And he creates this idea of a people who are his very own, he says. So when we truly understand and experience the grace of God and its work in our life and, we, and we're freed from the power of sin and the eternal consequences of sin, it, grace creates in us an eagerness to do what is good. This is no longer an obligation. It's no longer a burden. I don't live the way I live because I'm trying to earn God's favor. It's not a burden. I do it as a response to God's grace. I do it out of gratitude. I live my, my, I live my life in gratitude to God, not as an obligation or something that I'm trying to earn God's, more of God's love in my life. And man, that's a life changer. That's a life changer. When we recognize that there's nothing I can do and what I do is a response to God's grace in my life. So this morning as we uh, finish up our, our time together, we're, we're going to finish with a song. But what I'd like you to do this morning is close your Bible. If there's anything in your hands that is a distraction, set it aside. And I just want us to reflect on a couple things. And if you need to close your eyes, I would encourage you to, to just close your eyes as I walk us through this, this the way I want to close this morning. The first question I want to ask you is to think about this. Have you experienced God's saving grace in your life? If you have not come to the place where you have uh, come to a saving understanding of God's grace in your life, you can do that right now this morning. And it's as simple as the letter A. I admit that I'm a sinner, that I've fallen short of what God wants for me, that I'm dead in my sin, Ephesians 2 says. We start by admitting that. B, that we believe that Jesus is God's grace personified, that through belief in Jesus Christ, I can be saved. And see, I choose to put my faith and my trust in that message, in that person of Jesus. And that you can have that saving grace in your life. But I would also ask you to consider this. What is, what is God's grace teaching you this morning? We've talked about self-control. We've talked about living uprightly. We've talked about living godly. And I would I'd ask you to reflect this morning about what, what God's grace is teaching you. Is there an area of your life that you need to get under control? And notice, I want to be careful that we don't say that I need to get this under control. Is there an area of your life that you need God's grace to bring under control? Is there a behavior, a manifestation of maybe something in your life that has, has impacted how you live, 
how you treat other people, how you respond to things in your life that you need God to work on in your life? Do you need a, a deeper understanding of your relationship with God? That upward part of our relationship. Do you need to know God in a deeper way? This morning as we sing, as I would encourage you to sing certainly to, to worship God, but also that you might reflect on these couple questions and really reflect on God's uh, great love and God's great grace uh, in our life. Let's stand uh, as we worship together. Let's sing.